The Water of Life, a treaty on urine therapy by John W. Armstrong. Forward. By those many people who have derived and are still deriving benefit from urine therapy, I have repeatedly been asked to write a book, but hitherto I have demurred. First, because the necessary leisure has been lacking, and secondly, because I am adverse to any form of self-advertisement. However, realizing that a thing which is put off too long may never be accomplished at all, I have finally decided to yield to persuasions, and this treaty is largely compiled from notes, case sheets, and letters. <clears throat> Other reasons for giving out my experience to the world will become apparent to the reader in due course. I am fully aware that the publication of a book is attended with certain indirect drawbacks. One is that the writer may be in you inundated with letters and another is that if he is a practitioner he may be inundated with patients who may apply to him CEO his publishers as I am not touting for patients that was a further reason which I why I wish to delay writing this book but now that it is going forth to the public the following must be emphasized one a law that has been passed making it now illegal for any but a qualified medical practitioner to declare he can cure certain certain specific diseases, cancer being one, it should be noted that all case histories relative to this disease mentioned in this book are those of patients treated prior to the passing of the law in question. I am not in a position to state whether the law can be stretched so far as to make it illegal for a layman even to say he has cured such as cured such disorders in the past, but if so, then in accordance with medical dictum, one is forced to assume that where any such diseases have yielded other than orthodox treatment, they have preforce been wrongly diagnosed. As the therapy to be outlined in this book is it, oh two, as the therapy to be outlined in this book is an entirely drugless system of healing, and it and is a specific for health and not for any given disease. Diagnosis plays no practical part in the treatment. Thus, although the chapters are headed with the names of various disorders, it is merely for the sake of literary, literary expedience and to show that they have proved amenable to the general treatment. John W. Armstrong, 1944. <clears throat> Many people believe that 50,000 doctors, vast hospitals, armies of nurses, dentists, chemists, de clinics, and about 300,000 mentally deranged are signs of progressive medicine and civilization. But actually, they demonstrate complete failure of our medical system and wrong guidance of the public in nutrition and other ways of healing. Thousands of operations carried out weekly with brilliant technique give additional proof that the prior treatments had not achieved successful cure. <clears throat> Health and not disease is the true inheritance of life. Human creatures fail to realize facts which stare them in the face. We are made of what we eat. So if any organ becomes diseased, it is generally means the food was wrong. Disease becomes a vested interest, and consciously or unconsciously, the doctors foster it, it as such. It is quite a common observation that doctors produce disease. Moreover, the whole system and philosophy of our dealing with disease is mistaken. That's a Dr. W.H. White. The other ones were quotes too, and here's one more. Hippocrates. The great priest of medicine advised the physicians to accept the help of the laity in the treatment of disease, but his advice has seldom been followed. Like the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of health has to be taken by storm. J.W.A.
So this is my first podcast. My name's Shane, and uh, this is the Year of Life, Chapter 1, Introduction. I apologize ahead of time for all the mispronunciations, and I just hope I hope I get better. I probably will. I just wanted to get this out there so you all have the information. Here we go. Owing to the increasing part played by vested interests in many branches of human endeavor, not least in the very lucrative providing of remedy for diseases, Intelligent members of the public are growing more and more distrustful of orthodox medical methods. Many people must have asked themselves the following questions. How come comes it that for over 50 years, the orthodox cancer researchers have been occupying themselves with the cause and cure of malignancy, yet still can suggest nothing better than the knife, radium, or x-rays? How comes it that after letters, after letters from many doctors had appeared in the British Medical Journal testifying to the highly unsatisfactory result of radium treatment, it is nonetheless still boosted in this country and elsewhere. How comes it is that, it, that when effective treatments for cancer have been discovered, either by a qualified doctor or by practitioners of unorthodox schools, they have not been recognized by the cancer research ring, which still asks the public to donate large sums towards the discovery of a cure? To these questions, with which I shall deal in my afterward, no satisfactory answers are forthcoming. And we are forced to the conclusion that, although there are many selfless and noble-minded doctors to be found in most countries, in modern medicine itself, many things prevail which are much to be deplored. One, the torture of animals for experimentation and for the preparation of sera and vaccines. Two, the fostering of fear in the public mind by means of advertising. Three, Commercialism and vested interests which ought to play no part in healing the sick. And four, a narrow, spirited element of trade, unionism, which suggests that the patients exist for the doctors instead of vice versa. All these things, many doctors themselves have at one time or another commented upon and regretted in forcible terms. And yet, as after a war, nature or the higher powers seem to step in to adjust the balance of things by ensuring that a greater proportion of male children should be born. So when medicine becomes over-tinctured with material considerations, do they seem to inspire some method of healing as a corrective to these tendencies, as a help to those who are large-minded enough to take advantage of it? Such a method may be precluded by other methods, which prepare the way for its acceptance. For one must admit that neuropathy has been instrumental in curing many diseases where the orthodox system has signally failed. Nevertheless, as we shall see anon, naturopathy, as it is usually practiced, does not go far enough, for although it can cleanse the body of toxins, it cannot replace wasted tissue incidental to such grievous ills as consumption or other diseases of equal gravity. This can only be accomplished by an elaborate or elaboration of an ancient therapy, the details of which I propose to put forward in this book, and which I have practiced on myself and some thousands of others with signal success, although many of them were said to be suffering from incurable diseases. It is true that at one time I had resolved not to write my book until I had the chance of curing even leprosy, but as I am unlikely to come across a case of this dread disease and thus enabled to visit those countries where it is prevalent, I have decided to give the details of my experience to the public without further delay. My contention is, and I do not stand alone in putting it forward, that within man himself 
is to be found the substance to cure his disease, whether they be so-called wasting diseases or otherwise. And I propose to substantiate this contention by case sheets on the principles that one ounce of facts is worth many pounds of theories. If, in the course of stating the facts, references to me medical failures should be essential, this is the unavoidable. This is this is unavoidable in the interest of the public and of truth itself. Put a flag here. If, in the course of stating the facts, references to medical failures should be essential, this is unavoidable in the interest of the public and of truth itself. And such references are made in no spirit of hostility towards doctors. As already implied, there are many unselfish and honest physicians to whom I wish to do no injustice. It is erroneous, erroneous and harmful beliefs and practices which I am constrained to criticize, not personalities. The reader will see for themselves that such criticism cannot arise from any ulterior motives. I have no secret remedy or patent medicine to sell. Indeed, although a layman, I am only following the policy required from all reputable members of the medical profession themselves, B-I-Z, to make no secret of any discovery which may prove useful in curing mankind. The more so, as in many cases, the treatment can be carried out at home without any financial outlay whatever. Chapter 2. The Water of Life. Before relating my own experience with urine therapy, it is advisable to quote some opinions derived from both ancient and modern sources as to the value of urine as a curative agent. Toward the beginning of last century, a book entitled 1,000 Notable Things was published simultaneously in England, Scotland, and Ireland. In this book appeared the following quaint citation. An universal and excellent remedy for all distempers, inward and outward. Drink your own water in the morning, nine days together, and it cures the scurvy, makes the body lightsome and cheerful. It is good against the dropsy and jaundice, drunk as before, stated. Wash your ears with it warm and it is good against deafness, noises, and most other ailments in the ears. Wash your eyes with your own water and it cures sore eyes and clears and strengthens the sight. Wash and rub your hands with it and it takes away numbness, chaps, and sores and makes the joints limber. Wash any green wound with it and it is an extraordinarily good thing. Wash any part that itches and it takes it the itch away. Wash the fundamental and it is good against piles and other sores. Now here's another expressed extract from an old book called Salmon's English Physician, published in 1695, which I will quote in part. <clears throat> Urine is taken from humankind and most four-footed animals, but the former is that which is chiefly used in physic and chemistry. It is the serum or watery part of the blood, which being diverted by the emulgent, emulgent, emulgent arteries to the veins, to the reins, is there a separate... Urine is taken from humankind and most four-footed animals, but the former is that which is chiefly used in physic and chemistry. It is a serum or watery part of the blood, which, being diverted by the emulgent arteries to the reins, I think that's supposed to say veins, is there separated, and by the ferment of the parts converted into urine. Man's or woman's urine is hot, dry, question mark, dissolving, cleansing, 
discussing resist putrefaction. Use inwardly. Use. Plague. Man's or woman's urine is hot, dry, question mark, dissolving, cleansing, discussing, resist putrefaction, used inwardly against obstructions of the liver, spleen, gall, as also against the dropsy. John, stoppage of the terms in women, the plague, and all manner of malign fevers. Outwardly applied, it cleanses the skin and softens it by washing it therewith, especially being warm or new made. Cleanses, heals, and dries up wounds, though made with poisonous weapons. Cures dandruff, scurf, and bathes upon the pulses, cools the heat of fevers. It is excellent against trembling, numbness, and the palsy. Plague. Dissolving, cleansing, discussing, resist putrefaction, used inwardly against obstructions of the liver, spleen, gall, as also against the dropsy, jaundice, stoppage of the terms in women, the plague, and all manner of malign fevers. Outwardly applied, it cleanses the skin and softens it by washing it therewith, especially being warm or new made. Cleanses, heals, and dries up wounds, though made with poisoned weapons. Cures dandruff scurf and bathes upon the pul pulses cools the heat of fevers it is excellent against trembling numbness and the palsy and bathes upon the regions of the spleen urine eases the pains thereof the virtues of the volatile salts of urine is powerfully absorbed acids and destroys the very root of most diseases in human bodies it opens all obstructions of rains misturing and, and womb purifies the whole mass of blood and human Cures, Cal oh, and human cures, calclexia, rheumatism, and hypochondriac diseases, and is given with admirable success in epilepsies, vertigos, apoplexies, convulsions, lethargies, migraine, palsies, lameness, numbness, loss of use of limbs, atrophies. Palsies, lameness, numbness, loss of the limbs of use of limbs, atrophies, vapors, fits of the mother, and most cold and moist diseases of the head, brain, nerve, joints, and womb. Leukoheria should be added to this list. It opens obstructions of the reins and urinary passages, dissolves tartarous coagulations in those parts, and breaks and expels stone and gravel. It is a specific remedy against dysuria, esturia, and all obstructions of urine whatsoever. So much for the panegyric. Panegric. So much for this panegyric on what some of us have come to term the Edivie. But one also reads that in the 18th century it was much extolled as a valuable mouthwash by a partisan dentist. 
I will now quote some modern opinions as to the value of urine. Writing in Candide, Professor John Jean Rostand repeatedly stresses the biological significance of those substances known as hormones. The gist of his article of some 1,250 words may be condensed as follows. A recent discovery regarding the activity of hormones has completely revolutionized their study, B-I-Z, that certain of them filter through the kidneys to pass out in the urine. Multiple hypophysical hormones, the hormones of the adrenal and hormones of the sexual glands have been found in normal urine. The discovery of hormone urinology has far-reaching consequences. Urine provides a practically unlimited quantity of this basic matter. From the therapeutic point of view, it is possible to envision the use of these human hormones as apparently capable of exercising great power over human organism. Thus urine, extolled by many of the ancients, but misunderstood by the modern, semi-moderns, What's that, babe? Did you say something? Oh, shoot. <sighs> Thus urine, extolled by many of the ancients, but misunderstood by the semi-moderns, now appears in the light of a wonderful reservoir. A filtry of preeminent value. It contains, in a pure and often undreamt of quantity, products of the most vital nature bearing out what Mr. Ellis Barker maintained when he wrote that our body distills the most wonderful medicines and provides the most perfect serums and antibodies. I will now quote some remarks taken from a pamphlet by Dr. T. Wilson Dietchman, PhCMD, who writes, As the urine content varies according to the pathological state of the patient, its use is indicated in all forms of disease, except those caused by traumatism, broken limbs, or those that are a mechanic, of a mechanical nature. It saves the physician from the mistake that is made in selecting the indicated remedy from 3,000 drugs or more. What can be cured by the forces of the body cannot be cured by the forces outside the body. It is not re irrelevant here to mention the late Maurice Wilson, who made a magnificent, if abortive, attempt to climb Mount Everest, ascribed his Im immunity oh, shit. It is not irrelevant here to mention that the late Maurice Wilson, who made a magnificent, if abortive, attempt to climb Mount Everest, ascribed his immunity from ordinary eels and his astounding stamina to his many fasts on urine only plus external friction with urine, the lamas of Tibet and the yogis with whom he associated prior to his attempt claimed to live in, to a great age by means of the use of urine. By the same means they can also traverse deserts inaccessible to ordinary mortals. Last century, between the 1860s to 70, 70s, for drinking of one's own urine was a well-known cure for jaundice, and some doctors had the courage to prescribe it. I learned from one of my patients that when he was a boy, his grandfather had cured him of an attack of jaundice by urging him, on the advice of a doctor, to drink all the urine he passed during the four days of his illness. Among gypsies, the health-giving properties of urine have been known for centuries. Cow's urine has been taken in large quantities for the cure of Bright's disease, dropsy, and other affliction. 
I once met a Dorset farmer who had over a period of 60 years drunk four pints of cow's urine a day. He was 80 at the time, straight as a yardstick, and he told me that he was never ill. He had, on the advice of a gypsy, begun the treatment at the age of 20 for throat and chest trouble. Nevertheless, cow's urine as a curative agent is inferior to the patient's own urine, and I have known it to fail in the case of Bright's disease brought on by alcoholism. <clears throat> the wiser of the ancient Greeks used nothing but urine for the treatment of wounds. The Eskimos, even to this day, adopt the same measures. The question may be asked if urine therapy has been used by anyone in comparatively recent times. And the answer is in the affirmative. Apart from... Apart from... Uh, <clears throat> apart from others, the late W.H. Baxter, J.P. of Leeds in Harrogate, not only took his own urine but wrote numerous pamphlets on the subject which might have been regarded more seriously had they not been interlarded with somewhat irrelevant moralizing. Quote, Mr. Baxter, who lived to a ripe old age, declaring that he had cured himself of a cancerous growth by applying his own urine in the form of compresses and by drinking his own urine meat. He further declared that he had cured himself of other complaints by these simple means. Mr. Baxter contended that urine is the finest antiseptic that exists, and having made this discovery, he formed the daily habit of drinking three tumblers full as a prophylactic against disease. He maintained that if autogenous urine is taken in this way, the more innocuous it becomes. He applied it to his eyes as a strengthening lotion and used it after shaving for his complexion. He also advocated its external use for wounds, swellings, boils, etc. As an apparent, he declared it to be unsurpassed. See Doctor's Disease and Health by Cyril Scott. I can vouch for the truth of this statement, as Mr. Baxter was for a short time one of my patients. But what is not mentioned above is that during the treatment he fasted on urine and water only. This fasting, as the reader will see later, is an essential part of the treatment. At any rate, in serious disease conditions, in some rural districts, the use of cow's urine has been advocated by doctors for boils. A case may be quoted of a man who had a number of painful boils under his arm. They were quickly cured by compresses of cow's urine. In passant, I may have men mentioned that not so long ago, one of the most exclusive and expensive toilet soaps was made from the dehydrated salts and fats of the urine of grass-fed cows and another from the urine of Russian peasants. My informant was a chemist who knew what he was talking about. Furthermore, some expensive face creams containing hormones derived from human urine. What the eye seeth not. Let's end the chapter two. I'm just going to say it right now. I apologize for my reading. I, I wonder if anybody even wants to listen to it. I'm going to work on it. I'm just going to publish this because because I think this is really good stuff. And I've, I've been doing urine therapy myself. And nobody really knows about it until someone mentions it. And I don't know. I mean, not like I get really any thrill out of it. Because more well, I'm not, it's a pain in my butt. But I feel like it's, I feel like it's the God juice. And that's what I call it, God juice. Some people piss it away. Some people it's pee-pee. But I, I'd say it's, it's our wonderful substance that, that God gave us, each one of us, to heal each ourselves and i'll uh, i'll keep uh, reading the chapters chapter three next time thanks a lot everybody and uh god bless that's all
The Water of Life, A Treaty on Urine Therapy by John W. Armstrong. For chapter three, some objections answered. Before proceeding, it is advisable to deal with some objections which have been and may still be raised. It has been argued that if a man were intended to drink his own urine, he would have been born with the instinct to do so. But one may as well argue that because man has not been born with the instinct to do deep breathing, has not been born with the instinct to do deep breathing, exercises or adopt other measures which have proved conductive to health, they are therefore invalid or re reprehensible. Take, for instance, the yogis of India. By dint of practicing breathing exercises, strange postures, etc., they not only arrive at a perfect state of health, but contrive to extend life far beyond the usual threescore years and ten. At 150 years of age, a proficient Hatha yoga has not even a gray hair. It is true that the science of yoga can only be safely learned at the hands of a competent teacher, but that is another argument against the instinct theory. One notices, by the way, that man does not trouble about his instincts when it is a question of imbibing strong liquors or smoking hundreds of cigarettes. In short, when it is a matter of doing things which are bad for him, even though the first time he experienced their delights, his instinct rebelled. And now to answer another objection. How can it be right to take it back into the body something which the body is apparently discarding? And yet, if we turn to nature, what do we find? We find that where instead of scientific, scientific manures, the dead leaves are put back... into the soil. The resulting, resultant flowers are the most fragrant, the fruits the sweeter, and the trees the healthier. On the other hand, where the soil is, for some reason, deprived of those chemical substances produced by the dead leaves, etc., then the trees which grow in that soil are disfigured by excrescences, which I think quite aptly have been called tree cancers. What we are accustomed to regard as useless dead leaves are the very opposite of useless and should be dug back into the soil instead of being swept away by the gardener. Let those who challenge the statement taste the Iceni produce grown from soil treated on the principle that all that comes from the soil should be put back into the soil, and they will soon be convinced that the principle is a correct one. The idea that nature is wasteful is erroneous. She only appears wasteful to us because we do not understand her. The rotting dead leaves provide the most valuable mineral salts for the soil, one of the most essential being potash. Even the ashes of burnt dead leaves and burnt wood charcoal, are of great value. Therefore, why should a principle which applies throughout nature not apply, with certain reservations, to the human body? This question is the more readily answered if we consider the constituents of urine. Yet before doing so, something should be said about the unreliability of urine analysis as a means of diagnosis. Though urine analysis is still a practice among orthodox doctors, it has been found that the elements in and general conditions of urine depend far more on the character of the food and drink taken by the patient than on any fancied or real disease condition. Even the presence of sugar can no longer be regarded as an infallible sign of di diabetes. This I have proved to my own satisfaction by taking for a day nothing but drinks made of a chemical sweet powders and nothing in the way of food except a quantity of heavily sweetened tea ices. 
On such a diet, after 12 to 14 hours, the urine of an otherwise healthy person became charged with sugar and suggested to the doctor that he had diabetes. Similar mistakes have been made with regard to albumin found in the urine as a result of an ill-balanced diet. Some years ago, a friend of the writer's connected with a with a life insurance company had a number of prospects turned down owing to heavily heavy deposits of lumbum in their urine. Finally, he brought three of these men along for investigation. By dint of altering their diet, all the supposed to be indications of bright disease, nephritis or lumbdenmerian, from which they were alleged to be suffering very soon vanished and at a subsequent examination by the insurance doctor they were told they must have had local inflammations when previously examined further comment seems super flaws urea nitrogen 682 urea 1459 creatine n 36 creatine 97.2 uric acid n 12.2 Uric acid 36.9, amino N 9.7, ammonia N 57, sodium 212, potassium 137, calcium 19.5, magnesium 11.3, chloride 3 and 14, total sulfate 91, inorganic sulfate 83. Inorganic sulfate. Phosphate 127, pH 6.4, total acidity as CC 27.8. This is significant as showing the amount of valuable mineral salts contained in healthy urine, to appreciate which one needs to have studied the biochemic system of medicine. Even so, as already implied, there are wide variations in urinary composition according to the foods and drinks consumed. For instance, taking 50 normal subjects, we find that whereas the average urea amounts to 682, the maximum amounts to 1829, whilst the minimum is 298. As the volume of urine passed, it varies greatly according to diet and season of the year. Also, urine passed at night is about one quarter to one half of that passed during daytime. In view of the above analysis, we may still ask ourselves the question, if the elements which urine reveals are not required by the body, then why do our food chemists and biochemists emphasize their value and declare them to be essential to the body upkeep? The idea that urine contains poisonous elements, which the body is endeavor, endeavoring to, to eliminate, is based upon theory only, and is not demonstrated by the facts. As survivors in open boats and rafts often drink their own urine <clears throat> where their water supply becomes deficient, surely if they were drinking a poisonous fluid, they would die or become very ill. Far from this being the case, the practice of drinking urine is pronounced to be harmless but as the medical department of the navy pointed out in a letter to an inquirer the benefit obtained is not as great as would appear at first sight because in dehydration the output of urine falls to a very low level i shall comment on this later meanwhile i may remark that what may be a poison when separated from its natural environment may not act as a poison when remaining in its natural environment the medical profession may have been impressed when at the beginning of the century, Charon wrote a whole book on the poisons of urine. But as Professor John Rostand already quoted, has since written, the time is not far off when it will be imperative to write of the blessings of urine. Indeed, as we shall see in the course of these pages, the most 
pregnant of all facts is the outstanding fact that urine, however thick, concentrated, scanty, and seemingly poisonous, it may appear at the onset of such diseases as genuine Bright's disease, influenza, and others, very soon becomes filtered and greatly increases in volume when freely imbibed. This is a fact I have witnessed together with other practitioners of urine therapy in hundreds of so-termed hopeless cases, as is the best and most defined answer to the objection with which I am dealing. One other objection, which has been mooted, namely by those who are wont to put their trust in the princes of medicine, is as follows. If urine was at one time known to be such a valuable remedy, why has it fallen into disrepute? And yet those who put this question must be acquainted with the most elementary facts of orthodox medical history, which related of one long series of changes of policy, changes of drugs, tr of treatments of fads and fashions, and exploded superstitions, of altercations, of envies, and even of persecutions. Some of the strangest remedies have had a vogue for a few years only, to be regarded a few years later as the most disgusting and barbarous superstitions. For instance, the notorious Cardinal Richelieu was given horse dung in wine to drink on his deathbed, and not by quacks, but by men we should nowadays call qualified doctors. Nor am I here giving away state secrets in alluding to the instability which characterizes the orthodox medical profession. Speaking at the King's College HM School on October 1st, 1918, Surgeon General Sir Watson Chain, MP, urged the students to remember, Medicine is not an exact science. A good deal of what they were being taught was not true. When they came to deal with life, they knew so little about the living body that they could not be dogmatic. They could not, they could only lay down hypotheses which would hold for a day and then pass away. And just as the teachings of 70 years ago seemed to them very curious and not very sound, so it would be exactly the same 40 years hence. The truth of this utterance applies every bit as much today as it did in 1918, perhaps even more so. It is no exaggeration to say that far from being an exact science, in spite of all the scientific tests and patient, that patients are subjected to in these days, it still remains such an inexact science that 10 different doctors have been known to give 10 different diagnoses relative to so apparently simple an ailment as persistent headaches. In the American Journal Liberty, January 22, 1938, there appeared a significant article by a man in the late 70s who relates his attempts to get rid of this annoying trouble by consulting no less than 10 doctors in succession, and at the end of his adventures, he still retained his headaches. As the story is so significant and not unfraught with it's ironic and humorous side, it may be condensed here. The first doctor told him he had an obstruction in his nose and must see a nose specialist. The second told him there was nothing the matter with his nose, but he must see an oculist. The third told him he had low blood pressure and must have injections. The fourth told him he had high blood pressure and must diet himself to lower it. The fifth told him his liver was enlarged and he must have electrical treatment. The sixth told him his liver was not enlarged, but it secreted insufficient bile. The seventh told him that his pituitary gland was not functioning properly, and he must have glandular injections. The eighth told him he was suffering from intestinal poisoning and must cut down his eating and smoking. The ninth told him that he 
that his was a case of nervous debility, and he must take some pills for the trouble. The tenth told him there was nothing really the matter with him, and that his headaches were just headaches. In citing this article, I am not implying that doctors are ignoramuses. On the contrary, they are so full of erudition that they cannot see the wood of truth for the trees of learning. That is one very cognate reason why, sooner or later, they reject the simple remedy or treatment for the complex, no matter how efficacious that simple remedy has proved to be. A final objection which may be raised against urine intake by the fastuous, although it constitutes no argument against its therapeutic value, is that the taste must be so utterly revolting that only heroes could bring themselves to drink it. This assumption, however, is incorrect. The taste of healthy urine is not nearly as objectionable as, say, Epsom salts. Fresh morning urine is merely somewhat bitter and salty. But as already mentioned, the more frequently it is taken, the more innocuous does it become. And as might be expected, its taste varies from day to day, and even from hour to hour according to the foods which have been eaten. Even the urine which has passed in some serious disease is not as obnoxious to taste as it, its appearance may often suggest. And now, having cited testimonials, both ancient and modern, as to the therapeutic value of urine, and having also dealt with the aforementioned objections, I will sum up the evidence contained through many years of practice and personal experience on the part of those who are in a position to know the real facts. Urine, on being taken into the body, is filtered. It becomes purer and purer even in the course of one day's living upon it, plus tap water if required. First, it cleanses, then frees from obstructions, and finally rebuilds the vital organs and passages after they have been wasted by the ravages of disease. In fact, it rebuilds not only the lungs, pancreas, liver, brain, heart, etc., but also repairs the linings of brain and bowel and other linings, as ha has been demonstrated in the case of many killing diseases, such as consumption of the intestines and the w worst form of colitis. In fine, it accomplishes what fasting merely on water or fruit juices, as some naturopaths advocate, can never achieve. The proof of this statement will be found in the case histories abduced in the following pages. That's chapter 3 of Water of Life by John Armstrong, read by me, Shane Strickland. I'm going to read that last paragraph again, because it's that good. And it goes like this. Urine, on being taken into the body, is filtered. It becomes purer and purer, even in the course of one day's living upon it, plus tap water if required. First it cleanses, then frees from obstructions, and finally rebuilds the vital organs and passages after they have been wasted by the ravages of disease. In fact, it rebuilds not only the lungs, pancreas, liver, brain, heart, etc., but also repairs the linings of brain and bowel and other linings, as has been demonstrated in the case of many killing diseases, such as consumption of the intestines and the worst form of colitis, in fine, it accomplishes what fasting merely on water or fruit juice, as some natural paths advocate, can never achieve. The proof of this statement will be found in the case histories abduced in the following pages. Thanks again for listening. I'll, uh, I'm going to try to get chapter 4 to you as soon as I can. Amen. Bye.